Hello there and welcome to episode number 152 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. And in this episode we hear from Yonja Kuksal. She is Associate Professor of History at Koch University and the author of The Ottoman Empire in the Tanzimat Era, Provincial Perspectives from Ankara to Edirne, which is published by Routledge. The book examines the so-called Tanzimat period of modernizing, centralizing reforms, sometimes characterized as westernization or Europeanization, that the Ottoman authorities pushed through in the mid-19th century. It compares and contrasts the application of those reforms in the Balkan province of Edirne and the central Anatolian province of Ankara and comes up with a number of interesting conclusions that we discuss in our conversation. Before we get started with the interview, remember that you can find our entire archive of episodes going back to 2015 at turkeybooktalk.com. Also remember that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 30% off the price of all books published in Ivy Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by Ivy Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 30% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. Also, if you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then you're in luck because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is obviously ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Yonja Kirksal. The typical idea of the Tanzimat reforms is that they were a top-down imposition from the imperial centre in Istanbul. But the book paints a rather more complicated picture, using Adirne and Ankara as specific case studies. I started by asking Yonja Kirksal what made those two provinces particularly worthy of a study like this. So my book about is about the comparison of the Tanzimat reforms in the province of Edirne and Ankara. So when I started to think about how to study the Tanzimat reforms, I decided to focus on the provincial administration. Because for a long time, there's this understanding that the Tanzimat reforms were planned in center in Istanbul by the ruling elites and applied in uh, provinces without much consultation. But in the last couple of decades, we started to see several works on the application of reforms in provinces. And most part of this uh, research focused on 
the provinces that were far away from the Ottoman center. They studied the Arab provinces, for example. So we have studies of the 19th century or Tanzimat era in Yemen, in Albania, Palestine, in Transjordan. So most of these uh, provinces were the peripheral, let's say, areas of the Ottoman Empire. So what I wanted to do was to have a look at how the Ottoman reforms were applied in the core regions of the Ottoman Empire. So by core regions, I mean the parts of the Ottoman Empire that were under the direct rule of the Ottoman state. So areas of Western and Central Anatolia and parts of Thrace were under the direct control of the imperial center in this sense. So when the Tansimat reforms were first applied, they were immediately applied in both provinces. So in this sense, both Edirne and Ankara were subject to the same reform policies in the same time period. They faced with the earliest Tanzimat uh, applications in this sense. Uh, but I wondered if there was a change or a difference, right, in the way that these reforms were applied and in the way that this different social actors in those provinces responded to these reforms. Because my concern is to understand a more bottom-up approach of the Tanzimat reforms I wanted to see when the reforms were applied in two provinces, whether they produce different outcomes or not, depending on the social structures, local notables, social networks that existed in the local level, and also other factors like the demographic structure of the uh, province, uh, socioeconomic development level, and the, the geopolitical location. As you say there, the policies of the Tanzimat being applied in both Edirne and Ankara uh, in this in a similar way, or at least with similar intentions, but the reforms yielded very different results in both places. Uh, you talk about how the Tanzimat policies were much more influential and effective, actually, in increasing the state's control and improving uh, socioeconomic development in Edirne than they were in Ankara. So Edirne was more integrated into the developed Balkan region and Europe, whereas Ankara was more backward, essentially. It was poorer, less integrated into the uh, other economic structures. Just talk about how this difference shaped the contrasting approaches to reform in both provinces. This is a very important uh, point, an argument that I develop in the book, uh, William. I, I, I argue that even in the core regions of the Ottoman Empire, when the same reforms were applied, they resulted in different outcomes. So let me briefly explain these differences between Edirne and Ankara so that I think it will make more sense. First of all, the geopolitical locations of both provinces were kind of different. Both of them were part of the core regions of the Ottoman Empire, that they were subject to the same direct policies of the Tanzimat. But yet, Ankara was located in central Anatolia, and Edirne was located in the Balkans. In fact, Edirne was the previous Ottoman capital city before Istanbul. So there's this legacy of Edirne as a major city in the Ottoman Empire. And in fact, when we came to the Tanzimat era, Edirne became more and more significant for the Ottoman state because by the Tanzimat, the European powers 
demanded improving the rights of non-Muslim communities in the Ottoman Empire. The European territories of the Ottoman state, which included parts of uh, what's right now Bulgaria or northern Greece, was inhabited by a Christian majority. In fact, in Edirne, majority of the population were non-Muslims. Around 55 to 60 percent of population were non-Muslims in Edirne. So the Ottoman state wanted to show the European powers, European states, that it was able, it was capable, let's say, to rule over non-Muslim majority. Therefore, the reforms were taken more carefully, let's say, by the Ottoman state authorities. A part of the Tanzimat project was to create a concept called Ottoman citizenship. So, Ittihada Anasir in Ottoman Turkish or Osmanlıcılık in our modern Turkish. So, this idea of Ottoman citizenship was based on granting equal rights and responsibilities to all subjects of the Ottoman Empire, regardless of religious and ethnic differences. So Edirne, in this sense, being a symbol of Ottoman existence in the Balkans, created an opportunity for the Ottoman state to show the European states and to apply this uh, Ottoman citizenship policies. So geopolitical uh, location uh, was quite important for the Ottoman state. The demographic composition, the non-Muslim majority, also put uh, a challenge to the Ottoman state, but it also presented an opportunity to show that the Ottoman state was able to apply these reforms, regardless of religion and ethnicity. In terms of economic development, Edirne was actually a well-developed uh, city. First of all, because the uh, you know military stations, the army units were located in Edirne, there was a well-developed economic activity. More importantly, Edirne was located on historical trade routes that connected Istanbul to the central European cities. So the trade connections of Anatolia, or let's say the Ottoman Empire, passed through the city of Edirne. In fact, the first beginnings of industrialization in the Ottoman Empire started in these cities. There were textile factories that produced for the needs of the new Ottoman army. They, they produced uniforms for the Ottoman army, but they also produced for the European market from uh, the province of Edirne. Uh, so if we look at uh, the province of Ankara, we see a completely different story. Economically, Ankara was less developed uh, than the province of Edirne. A geopolitical location was also quite different. In, in central Anatolia, there were no threats of separatist nationalisms. 80% of the population were Muslims. So non-Muslims only compose 15 to 20% of population. Uh, whereas in Edirne, there were all these beginnings of, uh, you know, the national identities and debates. Just before the Tanzimat, an independent Greek state was created, was formed. In Serbia, right, as a result of the Serbian insurgency, there was an autonomous principality. Pan-Slavic ideas, starts of Bulgarian nationalism and Greek nationalism, gradually developed uh, in the province of Edirne during the 19th century. So in this aspect, Ankara was quite different, right? There was limited type of political activity of the non-Muslim community. 
communities. So the Ottoman state focused more on extracting revenue in the province of Ankara. Extraction of revenue meaning that the state wanted to tax, uh, but it also wanted to conscript soldiers. With the Tanzimat reforms, there was a new military organization in the provinces. There were provincial armies and soldiers were recruited from provinces. So extracting soldiers and taxes became the main policies uh, in the province of Ankara. But this doesn't mean that the Ottoman state did not invest in socioeconomic development. In fact, there was investment. Telegraph network, for example, telegraph lines reached to the province of Ankara in this time period. There was an attempt to sedentarize tribes. And there were new schools that were opened in this time period. State schools called Rushdies and Idadis, roughly referring to secondary schools and the high schools in Ottoman education system. So there were reforms in the province of Ankara. The Ottoman state invested in socioeconomic development to a certain extent. But this type of investments didn't receive the support of local elites in the province of Ankara. And that's one of the major differences that I focused in my book. Uh, One of my major arguments in the book is that the way that the networks between state actors and social actors were formed influenced the way the reforms applied and also they influenced the outcome of reforms. So to talk about quote-unquote success or failure of reforms, we need to look at the social networks and especially the way the local notables were positioned in the social networks. Let's talk about demographics, because that is a key aspect, as you mentioned a bit before, distinguishing the two provinces. Because in the DNA, there was this Muslim mi- uh, minority Uh, Even at the end of the 19th century, the Greeks were the largest ethnic group, followed by Bulgarians, Jews and Armenians. Whereas in Ankara, Muslims made up 70 to 80 percent of the population. And that really changed the state's approach to these two provinces because it made reform in Edirne. It made integrating Edirne into into the modernization process, I suppose, more important, especially considering the fact that, as you say there, there were these revolutions occurring very close by. There were nationalist movements emerging. So just talk a bit more about that, how these uh, demographic differences shaped things. You know, in Ankara, you didn't have the same threat perception, I suppose. So how important were demographic differences in the in the modernization process in the two places during the Tanzimat era? So let me talk about two different ways that demography influenced the modernization project of the Tanzimat. The first way is the way that the Ottoman state concentrated its reform policies. In fact, I just explained this aspect. Uh, In Ankara, in the absence of, or let's say, in a situation where the Muslims were majority, the Ottoman state did not have to concern much about the, you know, Ottoman citizenship project, uh, right? Because the, the Muslim majority, in a sense, provided certain channels for the Ottoman state to apply its reform policies. At the same time, there were no security concerns, right? Uh, But for the province of Edirne, especially uh, when we came to 1830s, there's this, you know, fear that the Ottoman rule in the Balkans could come to an end. And the fear had some ground, as I just mentioned. 
Therefore, they needed to emphasize this Ottoman citizenship project. They thought that if they granted equal rights and responsibilities, then they could receive the support of non-Muslim uh, subjects of the Ottoman Empire. Of course, the Christian majority in the case of Edirne, as you mentioned, there were Greeks, Bulgarians, but also Armenians and uh, a considerable Jewish population. So because of this aspect, the Ottoman state had a more integrationist approach. The Ottoman state became more concerned with socioeconomic development of the province. So we see a big construction attempt in the whole province. You know, not only the railroad came, but also all the, you know, roads that connected Edirne to other cities in the Balkans and to Istanbul were repaired. In addition, there were plans to improve agriculture, rice cultivation. More importantly, we see the investments in education, the openings of, uh, you know, cafes, uh, you know, theaters, a different type of integration in the province of Edirne. So I, my argument is that the Ottoman state was more active in introducing or investing in the development, socioeconomic development of the province. But at the same time, the local elite in Edirne was much more willing to support the socioeconomic development projects. And this is, I think, an important aspect. You know, instead of only talking about uh, Muslim uh, minority, non-Muslim majority, or vice versa, I think we should focus on the way both Muslim and non-Muslim elites were connected to each other in the local structure, because this mattered a lot in the way that this reform projects were applied in the province of Edirne. In Edirne, there were multiple local intermediaries, both Muslims and non-Muslims, by the way. The centralizing reforms of Mahmoud II eliminated most of the strong ayans, strong local notables in the Balkan provinces. They were either killed or some of them were bought through giving some kind of uh, incentives and privileges. So when we came to 1839, there were no strong dynasties, local dynasties, local notables that could resist the Tanzimat project. However, there were multiple middle-level local notables or local intermediaries that mediated the relations between the Ottoman state and the local society. And those people actually got some of their power from the benefits they got from the Ottoman state. So some of them were tax collectors, tax farmers, mutism, uh, but some others prospered through their trade connections with Europe. The interesting character of this middle-level local intermediaries was that they came from diverse religious and ethnic origins. So there were both Muslim and Christian tax farmers. The Sarrafs, the money lenders of Edirne, the city of Edirne, were mainly Jewish. In fact, they came second to the moneylenders in Istanbul and they asked for the same treatment that the Istanbul moneylenders received. So a, a very strong capital accumulation in the hands of the Jewish moneylenders. Similarly, there were industrialists for the first time, but those people did not exist alone. 
they cooperated with each other. That's the interesting thing. And I think that's more important than, you know, the, the numbers of demographics. The more important thing is that in Edirne, there was local cooperation among local elites, local notables, local intermediaries that came from diverse religious and ethnic communities. The coalitions that were formed were like bubble coalitions. So they were temporary, they were fragile, they were formed in times of need in this, uh, you know, strong competition among multiple notables. They were mainly formed for economic benefits, to get state benefits or to get some trade privileges uh, in the European market. And they tend to uh, dissolve very easily. But the important thing is that the local notables or the local elite in the province of Edirne had this experience of coalition forming that crossed over religious and ethnic boundaries. But in contrast, in Ankara, we don't see that. This type of coalition building that crossed over religious and ethnic boundaries was absent in Ankara because in Ankara, there was a strong local dynasty which was known as Jabbarzade or Chapanolu family. They were located in Yozgat, but they controlled almost all parts of the province. So that's, I think, a crucial difference. Not only demographics, but perhaps the way those religious and ethnic boundaries were crossed, I think, really mattered in the outcome of the reforms. So throughout this whole process, there was there was a process of negotiation, essentially. There was different local interest groups that were jostling for position as these reforms were being imposed or tried to be imposed from the centre. And in that sense, it wasn't just an imposition, really, of monopolistic state policies. Uh, and I think that's interesting because there is this popular idea of the Tanzimat as a kind of crude centralization, the crude westernization, the crude modernization, which was a kind of one-size-fits-all imposition, basically, and ultimately was a failure because it failed to stop, ultimately it failed to stop the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. And that kind of narrative has actually been challenged by more recent scholarship, and your book seems to fit into that kind of challenging scholarship. Could you just reflect on how your work does challenge that idea of the Tanzimat as being this kind of one-size-fits-all, centrally imposed thing that was the same in all different parts of the empire? And in fact, it was a much more complicated thing, and every province experienced it in different ways. Yes, as you just mentioned, in the recent uh, scholarship, this tendency started to change. But still, you know, when we look at the literature on Tanzimat, we have this tendency to consider Tanzimat as a policy mainly made in center in Istanbul and imposed in provinces without any kind of consultation. Because it was not consulted, it failed. In fact, you know, it's kind of a declinous way of reading uh, the Ottoman history, right? Uh, the assumption is that there was kind of a move towards an inevitable decline, and Tanzimat was just a step. Whatever the Ottoman state did, the end result was the failure. So the lack of consultation in this sense was one of the reasons of this Tanzimat failure. My work definitely challenges this perception 
this perspective. And in this sense, it's in line with this recent revision of scholarship. And in fact, when scholars started to work on the provincial reforms, when they started to work on provinces, then it became so, you know, inevitable, right, to talk about this variety of the application of Tansima. So in this sense, my research contributes to explaining this variety. So I compare two core regions of the Ottoman Empire, and this comparison, I think, helps me to show that the Tanzimat was not a top-down imposition. And in fact, one of the arguments I have in the book is that when the Tanzimat came into being, it was actually more like a learning process. The Ottomans came up with certain policies, they tried it, and when it doesn't work, when it didn't work, they fix it. They shift to another way of administering the provinces. A good example was the way the governors, provincial governors, that, that's valis in Turkish, were designed in this Tanzimat administration. In the first years of the Tanzimat, the responsibilities of the valis governors were quite limited. Why? Because the Ottomans had the Mehmet Ali Pasha, Muhammad Ali Pasha of Egypt, right, as a rebellious provincial governor that threatened the Ottoman state. Therefore, the idea was to limit the power of the governors. So in addition to governors, the military commanders and the financial clerks were made responsible in the administration of province. That's the first Tanzimat policy. But when the Ottomans saw that it wasn't working because three people having overlapping responsibilities meant that there was no, you know, organized provincial administration. So they switched, right? One thing they did was to separate the financial duties, military duties and administrative duties in the provinces. So I can give you multiple examples like that. In the tax farming system, for example, the experience with central tax collection was tried for two years and then they went back to tax farming. So they, they tried to learn from their mistakes in this sense. It was an interaction in this sense between state policies that were made in Istanbul in, in the imperial center and the local responses, right? And as a result of this interaction, the Ottoman rulers learned to come up with new practices. And there's this idea throughout what we're talking about here, this idea of um, state versus society, essentially, of there being a binary where the state imposes on society. And it's quite a crude understanding, but it's been dominant, as we say there, in people's understanding of the, this history. And I was thinking as I read the book that this actually resembles popular accounts of the later Republican reforms. This idea that they were all imposed on the periphery by the state as this kind of all-powerful, homogenizing center in a one-size-fits-all manner. And similarly, this rather crude binary of center and periphery has, has also been complicated in recent years. You know, things were not so simple. All those reforms that came later in the Republican era were also negotiated. They were also different in different provinces. And things were really just not so simple. I just wondered, um, do those parallels between the Tanzimat era and the Republican era also strike you? Oh, yes. Thank you. That's a wonderful question. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, by, by training, by the way, I'm a sociologist. 
I was trained as a sociologist, but later, of course, I became historian, so I have a complicated process in my education. But, of course, definitely, you know, in fact, not only for the Republican era, but when we look at the studies in, you know, historical and political sociology, we see this aspect, right? The status version. We can call it Weberian, but, uh, you know, there were also more recent approaches uh, that came in the uh, political sociology that emphasized the status approach. The idea is that, you know, state has an autonomy and it can act independently, meaning that it can impose its policies over the different social groups in society. That's wrong. I, I think, I believe in any kind of context, even the most authoritarian states had to make some kind of negotiations uh, so I agree with this approach. When we shift our concern, focus from the capitals to provinces, we have a different story. Even in very authoritarian states, in cases of top-down reform application, all of these reforms that were planned in center, they had to be negotiated at the local level. So some kind of a state and society perspective is needed in this sense for the study of Ottoman reforms. But yes, the comparison with the early Turkish Republican era and the 19th century Ottoman reforms are quite striking. In fact, you know, whether there's a continuity or break between the Ottoman state and early late Ottoman Empire, let's say, and the early Turkish Republic is a major question, it's a major debate in the literature. So my viewpoint is that definitely what we need to do for the early Republican era, we need to focus on even the social engineering, the top-down reforms of the early Republican era. When they applied in provinces, what type of outcomes they produce. And we, we, we have an emerging scholarship right, on this field. We see examples focusing on different parts, different regions of Turkish Republic. But I have to mention that the Tanzimat era was quite different from the reigns of Abdulhamid II and the CUP era, that's the era of Committee of Union and Progress. We call them as Young Turks. The Tanzimat reforms were kind of an experiment, right? The old forms coexisted with the new forms. So the old practice of negotiation were quite dominant during the Tanzimat era. So the local edits, notables, were not completely eliminated, but they were integrated into the state administration. I think the policy started to differ, especially in the CUP era. It differs in the sense that there were still negotiations, by the way. That's kind of an aspect that's kind of neglected in the study of the CUP era. Uh, but we have to be aware that there's still negotiations, especially with the Muslim landlords in Anatolia, right, to create a support base uh, for the CUP policies. But also with other, you know, organizations. We know that the Armenian nationalist organizations negotiated with the Young Turks, right, when they were in exile in Europe or when they came to power in 1908, the Dashnak Committee uh, had close links with the CUP, but in the following years, of course, these links were broken. So the strict centralized version of CUP, I think, reduced the amount of negotiation. So there is a difference, right? The Tanzimat for me is much more of a negotiated project. The CUP era, the negotiations continued, but 
uh, it changes content and the amount of negotiations became more limited. That was Yonja Kuksal. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 152. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. Also do rate or review Turkey Book Talk on whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com or via Twitter or via our Facebook page or all of them. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, before I go, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is now back in action after a brief break. It's a weekly email newsletter that's put together by the journalist Diego Cupolo. A package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and still some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.